Welcome to episode number 40 of the Four Animals for Earth podcast, Animal Protection in Japan, with Maho Uehara Cavalier. If, if you can't see the end result quickly, you get discouraged. But I myself always remind myself that we're part of the change. We should be mindful this is part of the big change. That was Maho, who is a dear friend of mine that I met back in Japan in 2011 after the earthquake and tsunami. Uh, We worked together to do fundraising to help animal shelters at the time, and she continued on to become very involved in helping farm animals. Um, Over the years, I learned a lot about animal welfare in Japan from Maho, and especially farm animals, um, the way that the animals were treated after the tsunami was uh, devastating, I think, to say the least, and uh, pretty mind-blowing. And she really um, seemed to kind of have a fire lit in her to really get involved in making a difference. And so after that, she continued on to the Humane Society University and then became an employee for the Humane League, leading the Japan office. Now she works with a mission to end suffering for animals who are used for food, and she specifically is working to end cage confinement for egg-laying hens in Japan. Our simple idea for today's episode is to look at our plate at the next meal or multiple meals, maybe get in the habit of it, and ask ourselves where each item on our plate came from. Do we know where it came from? And if it's meat or eggs, do we know how the animal was treated and how the animal was raised? And we can work towards just um, better knowing the supply chain for every single item that we have on our plate that we eat, learning more about it and just, you know, cleaning it up for ourselves. So for today's show notes, which uh, will have the links that we talk about, it has the video of my interview with Maho, her contact information and a transcript. You can go to fouranimalsforearth.com slash podcast slash 40. And I almost forgot. Happy Earth Day. I hope that you are having um, fun today and came up with something fun to celebrate. I also am really excited to share that it is our one year anniversary for the podcast. So the Four Animals for Earth podcast came out a year ago this week, and I am just so excited. I can't believe that we um, have been doing this for a year, and it is just still just as much fun as it was in the beginning to have these conversations. And I am so, so thankful that you listen to them. And you guys, I was reading reviews the other day and I started crying. I'm I'm just so moved and thankful for all of your love and support. And I thought um, maybe I could just share a couple of quick little uh tidbits from the interviews uh, before we start just to celebrate. So here are a couple of the things that you all said. There are so many ideas and perspectives that I didn't think about. I have learned so much so far. So many great conversations about how to grow compassion and stay present. This is a refreshing podcast, non-judgmental, no perfection expected. Love this podcast. Feels like an upbeat chat with friends. This podcast is listened to worldwide. It's your turn to join the revolution. 
Yes, I hope you all feel like you are on the revolution with me now. We are doing this together and I am so, so thankful. Obviously, they make me cry for your reviews. So if you haven't left one yet and you listen on Apple, I would appreciate it so much. And um, yeah, so let's get going. Hi there, this is Brandy, and you're listening to the Four Animals for Earth podcast. This is a space where we inspire each other to take small steps every day to live a more conscious life, helping animals and the planet while we do it. I'm so glad that you're here. Let's all take a deep breath and let's get started. I remember the first day I saw you, I met you. It was, um, Yoyogi Park. Uh, you remember we did the first animal walk, <laughs> and yeah, I remember you had a ponytail, and I remember you were wearing flip flops. <laughs> I love. Oh my gosh, I love that you can remember how we met. Yeah, that day was insane. So for those who are watching, to give you paint a picture of that day for you, we decided that we would just throw together this little fundraising walk at Yoyogi Park, and it was I don't know maybe three four months after the tsunami, and over a hundred people showed up, and we were so not prepared for that, and it was <laughs> we got in trouble for having the tables, and I mean it was a mess but it was amazing because it brought together all these people with the same passion we raised a bunch of money to help the local shelters and it started animal walk tokyo yeah definitely that was yeah after tsunami there are a lot of abandoned animals right mm-hmm. and volunteers were there and they're you know having a hard time collecting money or food or whatever uh yeah i remember that i didn't remember that was so Messy, I remembered it was really fun and nice. And right after tsunami, like you said, it was a good way to connect with people and help animals. Right. It really was. And it created, um, it kicked off what was an incredible community of people who are all passionate about making a difference. And we had um, two or three more walks after that and over a few years. And um, yeah, so it was really amazing. A really amazing. So from Yes. Yeah. So my dog. Yeah. Yeah. So Maho and I actually both ended up adopting dogs as well from the same shelter. And um, for those of you who don't know Maku, he is, I'll have to put a little picture of him in the show notes because he doesn't, you know, every time I get out the camera to take a picture, he, he still hides. He's not at all interested in being on camera. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, he was amazing. Um, What a life change from a shelter in the cage to Los Angeles, you know, with Tokyo and in Los Angeles. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's crazy. It's crazy. And it blows my mind. He is turning 10. So it's unbelievable. It's been 10 years. It's crazy. So you've been working with the Humanely Japan and um, I am just so um, inspired by the work that you guys are doing. And I think that um, I'm just really excited that I get to have you on the show today to learn more in more detail about what you're doing and for all of our listeners and viewers to learn more about what you're doing as well. So can you 
um, can you kick us off with telling us a little bit more about what you do for the Humane League Japan? Yeah. Uh, first of all, thank you for having me on the program. Yeah. And uh, the Human League Japan is um, Japan operation for the Human League. And the Human League is headquartered in the U.S. And there are uh, teams in U.K. and also Mexico. And I'm the regional manager and for Japan. And I'm re my responsibility is to guide the strategy here and the team in Japan. And our mission is to, the, to end um, the suffering of animals they use for food and in japan in particular we focus on layer hen and freeing um layer hens from caged confinement so in short eliminating caged caged facilities from egg production that's my job yeah and i work closely with mika my staff um the the staff in japan and um yeah we meet corporation they're asking them to shift to use uh, cage-free eggs, purchase only cage-free eggs, and then make a policy. That's, so, I mean, it's it's amazing. And I, I'm curious, do you know, um, not you may not know a number, but like what percentage of corporations in Japan are using cage-free versus not? Is it like literally over 90% are probably still not pledged to cage-free? Well, there are several big corporations have already pledged to go to um, cage-free policy. Uh, they use only cage-free. But so in Japan, uh, about 99% eggs are coming from caged confinements. So uh, when you think about that, yeah, I think the companies that use cage-free uh, eggs mm -hmm. are pretty, you know, small. Yeah, must be if 99% are coming from cage confinement. I mean, that's amazing. So what does it mean if a corporation pledges to be cage-free? How, um, are, so let me ask this question. Do the, most of the eggs in Japan come from Japan? And then what does it mean if they pledge to be cage-free? So, uh, yeah, Japan, egg is uh, unusually self-sufficient food in Japan. So ever since come from, yeah, it, it completes within the country. Uh, not the feeding, though. Feeding comes usually uh, imported. But anyway, um, what was the, your next question? I'm sorry. Um, so what does it mean if they pledge to be cage-free? Who Who's providing? Because So I'm thinking the next yeah. step back in the process. Like who's providing the cage-free eggs? Are there different uh, egg corporations that provide cage-free versus caged? Or is that a right. split within a corporation? Yes. Got it. Um, so um, usually cage-free policies there's a timeline by 2025, 2027. So they still have a few years to change. So currently, there are a, like I said, there's very little amount of cage free eggs in the market. But I think it's growing because they have, they have to grow. They have to add more cage free eggs to, in the market because there is a demand, right? So we're creating the demand. So current suppliers have to change the cage free some portion and there's a huge uh, egg distributor in Japan they have they have to probably add more cage free into their selection or options to sell big corporations okay okay cool so it's kind of like a bottom up 
approach that's changing the industry from the demand, which is really cool. Um, do consumers care about that? Have you found that consumers care whether the eggs are cage free yet or not? Uh, at this point, I'd say uh, if they probably don't know where mm-hmm. the kids, you know, eggs, yeah. eggs came from. Mm-hmm. Once they know, they say they want to change, but when they see the price, I don't know if they're really buying the cage free eggs. Mm-hmm. But I see, so I started in 2017, and since then, I feel there's a strong, like, there's a momentum, and it seems like it's getting stronger and stronger. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and I started seeing one cage free brand in one retail. Like when you go to even local store, there is one small selection of cage free. So there's something. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah. Like it's it's changing slowly, but but or quickly, because I would say the same thing here about the states. I mean, from 2017 to now, and granted I'm in California, so it's a bit of a bubble in terms of like people caring about animal welfare. So I, I don't always know the big picture. But it does seem like more and more people um just that I'm surrounded by know about the difference and say, oh, okay, yeah, I, I want to buy cage-free and are spending the few extra dollars to do that. Um, but I do feel like that is a newer thing in the past couple of years and, and changing quickly as as knowledge makes it out, right? Because um, I think a lot of it is we just don't know much about where our food comes from. Um, that's just kind of the reality of the way, um, I guess, the world has progressed in the past, you know, 40 years or whatever, there's kind of a detachment of where food is actually coming from. Yeah, especially you live live in a city, for example, Tokyo, you don't see animals, right? You see cats and dogs, but livestock people, you know, they're isolated. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, US actually collect collective efforts. And then one of the uh, groups is the Humane League. But um, they well, Human League started working corporate outreach and corporate corporate work from 2015. And since then, things have changed. The major food corporations have changed to go cage-free by 2025 and not actually created the momentum. And I think by now, over 400 corporations in the U.S. only have p- pledged to go cage-free. Wow. And that's, yeah, I think I remember 2000 five or maybe you know or seven there was only few percent of cage-free in the u.s but now 20 over 20 and we're expecting 2025 maybe over 50 60 wow so yeah wow that's amazing yes it's amazing yeah and that is um so open wing alliance which i know is somehow connected with the humane league is that something that follows along this effort for the rest of the world yeah yeah so open wing alliance initiated by the human league and the groups like there are um 77 members now over in 63 countries and our effort is you know mission is one goal, um, cage-free, right? And then groups in Asia or Europe, Africa, they gather together and work to end cage-free confinement. 
So yeah, it's connected. Okay. Um, yeah. And when you say groups, so is that um, people come together to volunteer or um, what makes up a group in a location? I see. Yeah. Um, for example, there are local groups in Japan, right? For for example, Animal Rights Center. And there are uh, organizations like that. It could be NPO. It could be maybe small groups, regional groups. They may have been working with K3 or may not, but uh, all the rig gather the you know energy and also people resources in order to make the cage free uh, policies cage free happens in regional areas okay okay cool cool um so for anyone i don't know if we'll have any listeners but there might be somebody who is asking this question like what is what's actually the difference in cage free versus caged like what does it mean to be cage free and what are the improvements in the um just the way that the animals treated by being cage free instead of caged yeah so um in terms of japan uh there is no standard uh there's only one there's no standard so for example when we say cage eliminate all cage confinement that means battery cage do you know, have you heard of like very small cages and there okay. two or sometimes five bars in one cage crushed okay. together? Yeah. And then there is enriched cages, which is a little better, um, but it's still the, the height is about 40 centimeter, which is, is high as the height of the hen. And there are, yeah, <laughs> there are less, you know, there's uh, parties and the nest area. But it's still, you know, the movement is restricted. When we say cage-free, eliminate all that. And then bars can freely roam around, then open wings, have vertical um, movement. Okay, okay. So it becomes like a big room where they can all move around inside that room. Yeah, that's correct. Got it, got it. Okay, okay. Wow. Um, So... Let's get into your story a little bit. So how did, where did the inspiration to get involved in animal welfare come for you? Yeah, I've always been an um, animal lover. And uh, my grand- grandma was known to be a local cat lady. <laughs> Anything, you know, cat issues, somebody would call her and then she'll be there. She would be there, right? Um, but things like I was influenced, I really liked the Charlotte the Web. What's, uh, yeah, the book. Sorry, right? Yeah, the yeah, book. Yeah, Charlotte's Web. Uh-huh. I liked the book. and um, But I think something sensational happened when I was uh, about 25 years ago, 22 years ago, three years ago. I went to a hog farm. And that changed my life. Uh, it was on for my work. And I remember it was in northern part of Japan called Hokkaido. I was driving. I went into the farm. But from a little bit, like, from a distance, I heard some noise, like machinery noise, like making squeaky sounds. Wee, wee. And then we went into the farm, and I noticed the sound was a hog screaming. Mm-hmm. And in the farm, sorry, in a farm, I saw you know nasty things, 
and not from that day I stopped eating meat. Yeah, that's a game changer for me. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. It's ironic how it's similar to mine um, because for me it was pigs as well. And um, it was when I was three. But I was on my grandparents' farm, and, you know, that was a small farm operation, so it wasn't as cruel as, like, factory farming is now by any means. But even I, – I, I even then was just like, no meat, and, you know, I still remember saying, I'm never eating meat again, and, of course, it didn't – my parents were like, oh, I don't think so. <laughs> so I, I had 10 pieces. They would cut 10 pieces of meat for every dinner. And I would have to sit there and eat those. And, you know, we laugh about it now, but there were nights that I was there until like midnight at the table trying to get down my meat. But, you know, um, who knows? Like, you know, with my health, it, it could have helped. I don't know. But I, it was when I was 19 that I realized like what a vegetarian was. And I was like, oh, I can be a vegetarian and I can eat off the vegetarian menu and I can make vegetarian meals instead of just eating like the sides to every meal because, you know, my – I was like, okay, the potatoes and the broccoli, that's what I'll eat. <laughs> you know, I, for years I just ate the sides. So, um, so yeah, it's ironic. It's, it's similar. Um, Did you but, have trouble finding vegetarian food, in, food when but, you were in Tokyo? You know, it's funny because when I was moving, everyone said it's going to be really, really difficult to find vegetarian food. And I did not find it hard. Um, I had a friend who was a vegetarian who taught me how to ask for vegetarian food. So I knew before I even arrived how to say what I needed to say in Japanese to ask for vegetarian food. And, um, you know, the probably the, the biggest culprit would be like dashi, um, you know, like the... Um, the yeah for everyone who's listening kind of like a broth that is typically made with fish and it's in a lot of things so that was probably the hardest but I mean there's so many vegetables in the Japanese diet um it is actually yeah yeah so I really I honestly felt like it was easier for me to eat vegetarian in Japan than it had been in the U.S. but I think that's because in the U.S. my diet was very um I guess like processed food, you know, I didn't know any better. So I was just buying things from the store and throwing them in the pan. And, you know, I didn't know any better. Whereas when I got to Japan, I was eating a lot of freshly prepared food, which was vegetables. And so it was um, easier. And then, you know, now um, being both vegetarian and gluten-free because mm. since, since the time in Japan, I've developed um, an autoimmune disease and celiac disease. Okay. So All now right. I have oh. to have both. So I don't know if it would be a little harder now than it was then. Um, but because soy is something I can't have or soy sauce, oh, yeah, I can tough. have soy, but yeah. not soy sauce. So um, I don't know, but I really didn't find it that hard. And I will say, I remember one of the things that, um, you and I and some of the other ladies that started Animal Walk Tokyo together bonded over vegan restaurants. Because I remember when I met all of you, I learned about all these vegan restaurants that existed in Tokyo. Um, you know, would you say that vegan restaurants are still very popular? It, I, I mean, popular I, popular is not the right word, but there's still plenty of vegan restaurants in Tokyo. And then what about in cities that are not as big as Tokyo? Yeah, so 
Um, I would say, yeah, vegan restaurants, I think more and more vegan restaurants in Tokyo, but they come and go, go right? Yeah, there is new one. Like there, there's three vegan restaurants in this neighborhood, and I thought, whoa, this is great, and all of them are gone. Uh-huh. Uh, but there are new ones, and there is a coffee chain that has already, um, that has dedicated to vegans. And it's a it's a Komeda coffee, which is a big coffee chain, and one chain is vegan. And so it's it's yeah, spreading. Um maybe because of the pandemic, people are more aware of the relationship between animals and food and us. And they tend to go vegan or vegetarian. So they skip the process of, you know, <laughs> knowing farm animal warfare. Which is good because our end goal is to not to eat, you know, not to harm any animals. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's interesting, isn't it? So you're finding more and more people going vegan. I think, like, that's that's really interesting. Yeah, people are at least, I'd say, more aware of the choice option. But still, you know, um, maybe I'm in Tokyo. I'm in this bubble, like you said, <laughs> uh, like in Los Angeles. So if you go away from Tokyo, I'm not really sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, I mean, that makes sense. And um, a lot of this stuff, it does seem like it's more common in the cities, I guess, probably because there's just more people. And when there's more people in the city, yeah. there's more diversity and different new ideas come up, yeah. you know, yeah. I think it just happens. Um, yeah. What are, like, so in the work that you do, what do you mm-hmm. find to be the biggest challenge in <laughs> driving change, you know, influencing change. What, you know, what's like the biggest challenge? And I wonder how that may differ in Japan versus in some other countries. Well, um, challenges uh, overall, like in general, challenges, the biggest one is the awareness is low or different. Maybe I should say, because, you know, a lot of people in this neighborhood walk with dogs. There are a lot of cats lovers, right? But why doesn't it go, you know, beyond that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's something to this information, knowledge, and awareness. Um, but in terms of my work, um, one, yeah, definitely awareness is one. And corporations are more, my job is to go to corporations and ask them to purchase or change the cage-free, sell only cage-free. But businesses are very cautious here. They want to make sure all the aspects of change doesn't take any risks. And what are the risks? What are the solutions? And take take so much time to figure out high-risk management, right? Mm-hmm. And then finally, they, they publish cage-free. Um, so they prepare well in order to make a policy. So it takes time. Um, at the same time, group mindness and then corporations usually say, well, we can't not be the, the one, first one. We have to change together. Yeah. And then change itself is not positive in Japan. Keeping things as it it is. People spend more time and effort about for keeping things as it is. So, well, let's make change. That doesn't sound good to them sometimes. Those are the changes. 
yeah, um, the challenges. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm. You know, that it, it all makes sense. And I mean, I do feel like maybe then once the decision is made and once the change is made, perhaps it's more sustainable because they have like gone through all of the detailed due diligence to make that change. Yes. I, I, I think so. When they decided to do it, they do it in a very systematic and good, in a good quality. That's what I'm hoping. And there's, there is one company that is a big, big company. They are working on creating, you know, pharma animal warfare strategy. And I think something good come out from there and they can lead the Japanese corporations. Hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. And it definitely gives you like an optimistic um, thing to look at, right? Because I, I, yeah, I mean, just from my experience, um, from what I saw in living there, I would think, yes, if a big company signs on and they figure out a really clear, strong way to do it, then it does seem like, you know, then the ball is rolling and, yeah, you know. Yeah, and this is actually the same thing in the U.S. too. Big corporations change, then kind of like, started the momentum and then the the followers they for them it's easier to make change yeah yeah and I would think you know if you're running a business of course it's easier to change once you've seen someone else prove that it works (laughs) you know it's like oh okay yeah yeah as you can imagine you can change the supply chain you know group of big corporations change and supply chain chain change right Mm -hmm. yeah Mm -hmm. that's actually the I, I really thought that the THL's strategy is brilliant. Um, yeah, yeah, because you're really looking at changing the whole thing from the bottom up, like we were talking earlier, which really sounds, um, yeah, sounds sounds like realistic. Um, and you know what? So I know it's pretty hard to do the work that you're doing. Like, what keeps you going? Where do you find the inspiration to keep going? I think. Um, I see the. I believe this strategy works, uh, and also the organization I work. With, the human link is pretty um, open to you know us to try something different in Japan because strategies are different here. Um, they trust us. Um, that probably is very, is a huge help for us because the local locally we can basically strategize and then find a way, the most effective way to change, to reach the mission. Uh, Yeah, I trust the strategy. I trust that the organization, I trust that things will change if we believe, I believe that the corporation has, I I still see that the people wanted to generally be better and good. And I go to corporations, they usually say that, oh, this is terrible, we have to do something, but they don't know how to do it. But I trust that, you know, they have the sense that this is not good. And then, like, they expand that. I think that's why. And I'm also mission-driven. I want to make it happen. Yeah. And I'm with you on the belief that I think almost everybody would change it and would, from a consumer standpoint, purchase cage-free if they could, from a corporation, be cage-free if they if they could see it. You know, I do think that people generally want to see those things stop and they want to see things change. And it's just a matter of figuring out 
how to do it and feel safe enough to make the decision, right? And or yeah. feel feel you have the means enough to make the decision. So mm-hmm. I mean, I love that you're saying that you see the strategic vision and you know it works and you believe in it because yeah, it's like slowly but surely those opportunities, the more cage-free eggs are on the market, the easier they are to come by, right? For corporations and for consumers to make the decisions. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so. Um, it's when we started. Yeah, um, there is no, there wasn't enough cage free, and still isn't. But because corporations, it's kind of like coming both way. Corporation changes, and the producers changing. Um, and part one of uh, Theater Japan's job, which is to directly work with producers, so we connect with producers and talk with the producers too. When they're cage-free, we talk with them and get their support yeah, on our side so that then we can connect the corporations with cage-free farmers. And it seems like they would be excited to connect with you and get their name. I mean, I almost feel like you could be like a marketing channel for them or like a sales channel, you know? It's like, you know, when you go in, here's here's the solution. Here's this cage-free producer. So I feel like if I was the producer, I'd be like, yeah, like, I definitely want to work with you. Like, help me get to these corporations. Yeah. Yeah. Uh- yeah, that's right. Um, but we have to always be mindful that we're we're promoting K three, but more like we're promoting layer hands being free from cage confinement rather than yeah, trying to promote cage free is one way, but we always should be mindful that we work for animals, we're advocate for layer hands. But there are a lot of uh, cage-free farmers. They new cage-free farmers, for example. This is a new phenomenon recently. I've seen um, young producers. They want to persuade animal welfare, so they become cage-free farmer. I've encountered these people. I thought it was amazing. They don't. They'd rather be a cage-free well, like animal welfare advocate. Advocate but they became a cage-free farmer in order to advocate for farm animal welfare and cage-free. Okay. Yeah. 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 That's that because that's a way to like influence from the inside out. Right. And then, so, I mean, I think you're saying too, so the goal is ultimately beyond cage-free. Yeah. Is is that's what you're saying is like, ultimately, you you know, cage-free is a stepping stone to get to hens truly free and um i guess pasture or i don't know uh, yeah maybe free pasture range. or just open yeah free range that's the word yeah. i'm looking for yeah. yeah 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 this is a you know step by step change no battery cage and going to in in the end less eggs less animal harm that's our goal so it, it takes it takes time and when we're doing this as you know this is a work if if you can't see the end result quickly, you get discouraged. But I myself always remind myself that we're part of the change, in pro in the process of the change. And so as the staff in Japan and I think the rest of the team, we should be mindful. This is part of the big change. Yeah. I, that's an amazing way to think about it. Honestly, I think it really is. And um, if you weren't doing the work, then it wouldn't be progressing, you know? So it's, um, yeah, yeah, I think there's so much value in what you all are doing. Um, 
and I'm so thankful for it. You know, honestly, I, I know, I know so many of us are so thankful for it. Um, one of the things that I like to wrap up episodes with is asking all of my guests if they will share one simple idea off the top of their head that listeners and viewers can try in their daily lives to make a difference for animals and the environment. Do you have an idea you can share? Yeah, uh, think of where their food is coming from, especially livestock, you know, with meat, eggs. Where are they coming from and how the animals are raised? I just want people to be mindful when they shop or eat. Um, yeah, and just, uh, yeah, follow the trace, the route to the route that you know, definitely goes to animals and how they're raised and how they're kept and how they're uh, slaughtered. Um, that's one thing to think. And as an action, uh, the Human League has uh, humanleague.org. And then please go visit our page. And there is a page um, link called uh, First, Net, First Action Network. Okay. You can, it's a very easy way to connect and get started taking actions. Just sign it. And then every day you can do something to make change for animals. Oh, that's really cool. That's really cool. I will link to that in the show notes um, so that people can go check it out. California okay. is actually a very progressive state, right? I know you said, you know, um, you're in a bubble, but California, the state, they, um, there's a law, you can't use caged confinement for egg production and you can't even sell eggs came from cage confinement so people changed it yeah I was gonna say it was probably I don't know two to three years ago I remember the proposition and um yeah and it was it was consumers I mean it was citizens of California who made that decision obviously there were people who pushed it to get it onto the um the voting but at that point then consumers chose it and I guess it just goes back to that thing that we were saying earlier which I think most people would change it if the opportunity's there you know so and and um I think Again, even to the point that we made or you were making about how um, when one place goes and leads the way, more come. So, you know, this happened in California, so it can happen in other states and other countries. And I love that you've got this resource, the Fast Action Network, where people can go become a part of this. Um, that's awesome. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, just uh, yeah, go join the Fast um, Action Network, and there's a way to make the donation for our organization. So yeah, support is always, you know, welcome. And the best way to make a donation is how? Um, is there a link on the humaneleague.org? Is that the best yes. way to make a donation? Yeah, okay. there's a yeah. Okay. It's easy. Mm -hmm. Perfect. And the best way for someone to get in touch with you if they'd like to talk to you more, what's the best way to do that? Um, uh, email is probably okay. the best now. Okay. Um, I can yeah, put an yeah. email in the show notes for you. Yeah. And that, that we have the Facebook uh, for the Human League Japan. So you can send a message. That way is fine. Yeah. We have Instagram. You can send a message from there too. 
So that wraps up my conversation with Maho. I hope you enjoyed learning about eggs and egg-laying hens today. If you have any questions for Maho, please feel free to reach out to her. Her contact information is at the bottom of the show notes. You can find those at 4animalsforearth.com slash podcast slash 40. A reminder that Maho's organization is our charity of the month, which means we're all jumping over and following and liking and sharing what they do on social media. You can find them at Facebook and Instagram at Humane League Japan. You can also sign up for the Fast Action Network that Maho mentioned at thehumaneleague.org. I am really excited about that. I think I'm actually going to be signing up for that myself. If you don't find the link, that is also in the show notes. As always, I am so grateful that you're here and you're listening. And if you're willing to share the show with a new friend, that would be amazing. Or if you haven't already, to leave a review on Apple or Stitcher. I hope that this Earth Day is more magical for you than all of them in the past. And I hope that you're feeling inspired about the difference that you make every single second that you spend listening to or talking about all of these subjects. Thank you again so much for your support. We made it a full year. Yay. Happy Earth Day. See you next week.